this is a heavy, difficult part of Scripture. And this is not where Paul is trying to write off some nice fluffy things for us to think about and smile about, but he's really going to challenge us in many ways. And so I felt like it was really important today to just to hear God's Word as it was received by those that first received this letter. So I'm going to ask Brandon to do that. If you would, give him attention to this and to God's Word. Brandon? The Word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay, afflict, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that life is not always easy. We know that sometimes suffering abounds. God, help us to find our refuge in you and to glorify you amidst suffering even. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. As we launch in today, I tried to think of a funny and clever way to dive into suffering with. I didn't come up with one. What I did realize is that suffering is a part of all of our experiences, and I know that I don't need to tell that to you. That's not something that when I say we all suffer, nobody grabs out a pen and suddenly writes that down. That's not like great insight. What it does tell me is that Scripture, once again, proves itself to be unbelievably relevant and practical in our lives. What Brandon just read is roughly in the neighborhood of 2,000 years old. And yet, it is addressing the conditions and the struggles that we face 
today. What I'd like to do is I'd like to walk us back through that passage and draw some connections between suffering and struggling that you may be experiencing in your life. And I realize that oftentimes when we walk into territory like this, I realize that I'm walking on some very difficult, wounded places in your life. And they may be very current. I mean, you may be experiencing some kind of suffering and struggle right now. If it is, I pray that this is going to be a difficult teaching, but I pray that this is going to be an encouraging teaching uh, to you. Because once again, Paul writes with an inspiration that comes from God. That's what we believe is that he's inspired. That these words are inspired by God. They come through the person of Paul, but they are inspired by God, and they have an unbelievable relevance to us today. If you heard me preach, I've said before, I said that I believe we are living in a time in the 21st century where the cultural dynamic is more akin to what it was like in the very first century when these documents were written than any century in between. And what that does is that doesn't mean that the Bible says new things to us, like it, like it just now created something new, but it does give us a very set of fresh ears with which to hear because of the similarities between that. And so we're going to look at a group of people that were suffering and they were struggling. This is, I, I jokingly called this last week's bonus material to our series that we just completed, The Everyday Disciple Every Day. And what did it mean to follow Jesus? If you felt like an ordinary person of faith, what's that mean to follow Jesus every single day, even though you feel ordinary? And how do you experience this extraordinary life in the ordinary? And Paul had written a letter to a church in a city called Thessalonica. And just to remind you that Paul had gone there and he preached, and this was one of his most successful preaching ventures yet. He jumped in and he preached, and as far as we can tell, somewhere between three weeks and three months, a church had sprung up. A church, because of his preaching, had gathered. And people were all in, both Jewish people that knew a Messiah was coming, and now they realize that that's Jesus, and Gentile people that had worshipped all kinds of other gods, all pagan, some of them with some what we would consider um, horrific practices, immoral practices that went into the worship of that God. They hear the message of Jesus, and this church comes together, this very unlikely church, because it's made up of Jewish people and Gentile people, that's the non-Jews, they come together, and they're praising the name of Jesus. And it makes such a mark, it's so successful, that the powers that be in the society, in the town, in the city, see this, and they realize this has happened in other cities, and what it did is it disrupts everything. It disrupts the commerce and the trade and what they sell in the marketplace. Suddenly these Christians are changing their economic income. Their, their profitability. And so, in this short time, this word takes root. These people start worshiping Jesus, and the culture comes around them and says, we will work to repel you. And so they actually get what can be kind of akin to a lynch mob to come together. They hunt down Paul and his friends. Paul luckily gets word of it ahead of time. And has to leave town. He has to actually flee. It's kind of an in-the-middle-of-the-night type deal. 
they find the leaders of the church and they bring some charges against them. They have to pay some fines and they're trying to persecute them. So Paul leaves a very successful church plant and he goes off and now he knows that there's persecution. And he knows that they're going to struggle and they're going to be challenged. And so he's worried about their faith. Then word comes to him that they're thriving. Not only, not only are they just hanging on for dear life, but they're actually thriving as a church. And so he writes that first letter that we have, and we know it as 1 Thessalonians, the first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And that's the one that we've just explored. Well, the life of that church continues on, and so does the persecution. There is a steady, growing increase of the persecution of the people that are opposing those that would call themselves followers of Jesus. And sometimes we get a little lax in our world today because we have what, in my estimation, we have increasing persecution, but it's not on the level that they were experiencing, at least in this country it's not, and around the world it is. But in our country, it's not quite yet to the threat of death type persecution. But these Christians are starting to experience this. Because there's an expectation in their culture that at least once a year, at some appointed time, everybody shows up in the the public place, in the public square, in the temple... And you burn a little bit of incense and you make an offering and you state the words, Caesar is Lord. And Rome, the power of the time, didn't care whether you actually believed it or not. They weren't interested in the life that you lived because of it. They just wanted to hear it. And now there's this strange group of people that won't go along to get along. That They won't just go through the motions because they're professing something that says, no, Jesus is Lord, therefore I can't make that statement because both statements can't be true and I refuse to live with the disconnect between the two. And this culture around them, the places of employment, the places of worship, the marketplace, all looks at them and goes, why? That's weird. That doesn't make any sense. All you got to do is say the line. And they won't do it. And so now persecution has come to them. And it's been ramping up. So the first letter Paul writes, and he says, I'm so thrilled to hear that you have been not only surviving but thriving. And then the second letter now comes, and we're going to see in this letter that their persecution has just increased. And Paul is a pastor at heart. He loves this church. He loves these people. And so he wants to give them something practical to hang on to. He wants to give them... Here's, here's a strategy by which you can bear up under this suffering. So if you have your journal, your Bible, open it back up. I'm going to walk back through some of what uh, Brandon just shared with you. Because again, we heard that as they would have heard it in the very first century when they received it. But he begins this way. Paul 
Silvanus and Timothy. And that second name there is simply an elongated version of Silas. Maybe you've heard that before. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is not just an easy way to say hello. He's blessing them grace and peace. Nobody is experiencing a grace surplus. Nobody's experiencing a peace surplus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets into it almost immediately. I mean, look how fast he gets into this part, this, this concern for their suffering. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. So now he's saying, let me tell you, let me brag on you just a little bit. Brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the, the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, a little inside baseball. I get this. I know what it is to brag on your church. Because I'm so proud to be a part of this church. And so grateful. And there's often times in my time here that I would gather with a group of ministers. And as they would go through and talk about their church, I was like, that's awful. What, what you're experiencing is horrible. And there was fighting and conflict and bickering and backstabbing. And maybe you've got a horror story all of your own. And we'd kind of go around the table and get to my turn and I'd be like, I'm so blessed. And they'd be like, get out. So I know, understand what it is, but I want you to understand what Paul is bragging on here. What he's boasting. He's saying... You're thriving with this suffering and this steadfastness and these persecutions that are going on. Now, it is not intuitive to say, I'm going to plant a church, and what we're going to need when we have the list of planted churches, you're going to think, okay, we need some resources, we need some financial resources, we need some leadership, probably need a building, maybe a facility, we need to think through these things, we need to get a curriculum, we've got to get the speakers and the microphones, we've got to get all this in place. Oh yeah, when will they deliver the persecution? Because without the persecution, this isn't taking off. But Paul is saying, there's the ingredient. There's the thing that I'm bragging about. It's because of these afflictions that you are enduring. And he goes on. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The evidence of your thriving in the midst of persecution is the, the demonstration of the righteous judgment of God. Now this is a big long sentence that Paul is putting together, so kind of hang with me. But Paul is making a statement that your suffering proves... There's righteous judgment of God. Now, at face value, that's of little comfort if you ask me. God, there's other ways to prove yourself. This is not one of them. He says, no, you're enduring. And how you're enduring matters. The fact that you're enduring matters. 
And I want you to pay attention. This is Paul. Pay attention to how you endure during your suffering because God is using that as evidence of his righteousness. Evidence of his existence. We're going to circle back. Listen, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered, now look at, look at how strange this gets, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So, my suffering, your suffering, the suffering of these first believers is evidence that there's a righteous God and that His kingdom is real. And our suffering, now I want to be really clear with this because because Paul could be misunderstood here. When it says that you may be considered worthy of it, let's be real clear. It's not that because you suffered, you somehow earned your way in to God's good favor. This is not a works-based deal that if you will just take on all this suffering, that moves you across the line of salvation, across the line where God, God pays attention to you. Because actually, most of us approve the other way, right? If I'm suffering, there's something wrong, and God has suddenly let me down, right? My suffering is not evidence of the presence of God. My suffering is evidence of the absence of God. That's the way most of us would approach this. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's not that you're earning your way in, but the fact that you're suffering and how you go about the suffering is an evidence and showing that this is the kingdom of God is worthy of your entire life. Again, it does not make sense to those that would simply say, Caesar is Lord. But to those that are holding steadfast to this, your suffering has purpose in it. And he goes on to explain... This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What your suffering does, it becomes a megaphone that God uses to demonstrate himself to the world. Now, this is a hard teaching, I admit. Because what I want to be concerned about in my life is me. And my comfort. And I want it to be easy. And unfortunately, you may have experienced preaching somewhere in your life or been around preaching that when somebody came to talking about your relationship with God, the promise is that if you'll serve God, life gets simple and sweet and successful. And all the difficult corners and edges go away. But what Paul wants the Thessalonian believers and wants us here today to understand, and here's the first big takeaway that I want you to understand, again, this is difficult, is that God is concerned with your holiness not your happiness. God is concerned with your holiness. Holiness is your set apartness. How do you live as the called people of God? 
How do you wake up every morning, every day as a disciple, living it out every day? As a holy one in the midst of this. And so how you go through suffering, how you experience that, what Paul is telling them, and theirs is heavy, and yours it may be too, how you experience that becomes this megaphone, this platform, this billboard for God to say, here's who I am. Have you been to a difficult, difficult funeral? And I realize that all funerals are difficult in some way or the other. But perhaps it's one when the person died way too young. Or in some very tragic circumstances. And then a loved one can get up there. And even though they're in grief, and I don't take anything away from the grief, and it is hard, and it is a difficult day, they still testify and talk about their loved one's faith and their faith in God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see that, it convicts me to the core on that. Because nobody's playing games in that moment. There's nothing easy about that moment. That is such a more powerful testimony than a thousand people lining up and saying, let me tell you how God made me happy. And let me tell you how easy my life is. We're not inspired by those stories. We would like those stories to be our stories, but we're not inspired by them, are we? There's something that doesn't get to the very core of who we are, but when we see faith lived out in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the struggles, there's something that wells up in us and grows inside of us and calls us to something different. God is concerned with your holiness, but not your happiness. And so oftentimes our very suffering is God taking us into a spiritual boot camp. And he's forming our character in the midst of it. Now, I'm not suggesting that God caused your suffering. But he's doing something with your suffering. Paul goes on. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, if you grew up with what maybe you've heard referred to as hellfire and damnation preaching... I don't think that's my style. But these verses sound just like that. So listen, listen to this. Since, you indeed, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when, pay attention to that word, coming right back to it, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on the day, glorified in His saints, to be marveled among all who have believed because our testimony was believed. Now, if you're suffering because of somebody else, That's some powerful words, right? That says they're going to get what's coming to them. Now, oftentimes, if you're not familiar with God's grace and what Jesus did for us on the cross, you hear those words and you think, 
That's the kind of God. He's just a mean, angry God. That's not what God's talking to. God is talking to those. It's not that they've never heard the message. They've heard the message and they've made their choice. And they're going to stand in opposition to the will of God and to the grace of Jesus. That's why... In, um, uh, that, that's why I say, I'm going to go back to uh, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. What Paul is saying there is, you wanted to be away from Jesus. I'm going to honor your request. You get what you want. And to everybody else is saying, when you suffer, because you suffer in the name and under the name of Jesus, God is a just God and He takes sin seriously. That's what Paul's telling them. He takes your sin and my sin seriously. And payment for the sin will be made somehow. For those of us that believe in Jesus Christ... He's the one that makes that payment, that sets that right relationship back with God. But God does not force that upon you. And so to all the others, this is the judgment that's coming. God cannot be a holy God and an unjust God. He must be both holy and just for those to remain. And so what God cannot do as a holy God is he cannot take sin lightly. So God does not simply wink and nudge at sin. Now, it may feel that way sometimes. Because we look out in our world and we're going, where is the judgment? Where is the vindication of God going to come? Because it's not hard to find all the evil that you want in our world. God does not turn his back on it. There is a judgment coming. That's what Paul is telling you. In every single broken promise, every single bitter word, every single action of violence, every um, moment of sex trafficking, every, every display of violence and racism will come under a judgment. God cannot, His nature will not let Him ignore sin or just take it lightly. This is why Jesus came, because God takes it so seriously. But for those who choose not, there is a judgment coming. But the struggle for us is it just doesn't seem like it's coming fast enough, right? So that's where I want to go back to that when word that you see in verse 7. It says, and we're going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So the second thing I want you to know is this. He's talking about there's a day coming. This will come. It seems like it's not happening now, but you don't need to take justice into your own hands because God, who is holy and just, will bring it all together when 
Jesus comes back. And so the difficult part about trusting God is trusting God's justice also means that we have to trust his timeline. But he's got this. That's what Paul is encouraging these people who are suffering under the hand of this culture because they will not bow a knee to Caesar. And he's saying, it is difficult, I understand, but there is a day coming. And that's what he's directing their eyes towards. And so he finishes this way. To this end, we always pray for you. Paul does this often in his letters. He prays for these churches. And Paul gives a prayer that he has for them. Look at this prayer. This is powerful stuff. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. May he fill you up in all the good work that he started in you. May he bring those to completion by his power so that in the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. May be glor- so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Once again, it's a megaphone. The suffering that you're experiencing can be a megaphone for God. And you in him, according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's prayer. Now, Paul knows that they're suffering. That's what the letter is about. But look at the prayer. What's so strange to me in the prayer is that Paul never prays for the suffering to actually end. That's the prayer I would be praying. God bringing into it. Give them some relief now, not when, now. And this is the difficult part. Because God is a holy God, He's a just God, but we have to trust His timeline. And for most of us, that means we have to give up our stopwatches and pick up our calendars. And that's really difficult as you experience your suffering, isn't it? And so I want to give you a question that I think Paul has encouraged them to ask. As you experience your suffering, knowing that God cares more about your holiness than your happiness, and knowing that this can be his megaphone, here's what, as you experience your suffering in the season that you're in right now, I want you to ask, what can God do with this? What could God do with this suffering? And there's a moment that you can have a conversation with God where you're giving Him your suffering and say, God, I, I, I am praying for this to be over. I'm praying for you to deliver me through it. But as long as I'm in this, what can, I do, what can you do with this? Perhaps He'll do something in you. Perhaps there will be a work of His Spirit at work in your life drawing you into a greater relationship than you've ever experienced before. Perhaps He'll do something through you. And you will suddenly find yourself with a ministry that you didn't expect, you didn't ask for, but God's doing incredible things based on the struggle, the suffering that you're going through. Maybe He'll do both. Most likely He will. But praying, what God, what God, what can you do with this? And so here's Paul's big point. And here's the thing that I want you to take away for all. Because Paul is addressing their suffering with hope. He is focusing them on the person of Jesus. 
Now, what Paul doesn't say is this. He doesn't say, as you go into your suffering, what you need is you need bigger faith. That sounds like a good preacher thing to say, right? You know what? Whatever, you just need bigger faith. And I thought about getting up here saying that, but then my next thought was, what does that mean? Bigger faith. What Paul does is very important. He focuses their attention on the day when Jesus is going to return and everything is going to be made right and just in the world. He's giving them a vision for what's to come. This is what you're hoping for. He doesn't just simply say, grit your teeth and have bigger faith and hang on tighter. He says, no, I want you to see something in the future. I want you to see when it's all made right. This is what your claim, Jesus is Lord, means. And there's a day coming when Jesus is going to return, and it will be obvious to everybody, and all the injustices in the world will be set right. And they will be avenged. And there will be justice again. That's what you're hoping for. So what Paul wants us to know and wants them to know is what you hope for shapes what you live for. He doesn't simply say, grit your teeth. Have more faith, he says. Increase your hope. If you want to increase your faith in any season of your life, I want you to become very focused on what you're actually hoping for and God to do in your life. Because the clearer you get on that, the greater your faith will increase. That's the promise that Paul's making to them. I want you to see this. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And then that begins to shape how you live under this suffering that God can use to glorify himself through. Maybe you're familiar with the author and spokesperson, an incredible believer, Johnny Erickson Tata. She's about 73 years old now. But when she was 17, she was incredibly athletic and just just a full of life and energy. And so one day she's out by a lake with friends and she dives into shallow water and she snaps her neck. And in a moment, at the age of 17, Johnny Erickson Tata becomes a quadriplegic and enters into a life of suffering that she could not have imagined before. She had faith. And she describes her faith before as simply, I would sort of summon Jesus and pull him out of my back pocket when I needed him. But suddenly he became everything to me because everything else was taken away. And her days are long and difficult. She requires 24-hour care and assistance to get out of bed, to bathe, to be fed. But she's had this prolific ministry of telling people about Jesus and what God can do in your life. Several years after the accident, she was going to get married to a man named Ken Tata. And she's been married for many, many decades now. But she tells a story on her wedding. And like any other bride-to-be, she had pictured the wedding coming off just perfect, even though she knew it would have some challenges. But on the wedding day, there was problems with her motorized wheelchair. And she was looking to come in in this grand entrance, but she realized that somewhere along the way she had rolled across her own dress. And that left a big grease mark, and it ripped the dress. And suddenly, as you can imagine, a bride with all the hope and all the expectation, it seems like it's coming apart. 
And she realized that she started to sink in, sink into some depression. That the flowers that she was holding, that she or the, the flowers that had been placed on her lap because she physically couldn't hold them had slipped, and they were now they were kind of dangling off, trapped between her knees. And the whole it seemed like the whole thing was coming apart, but then the doors open. And she's going to make her approach down the aisle. And she looks at the end and she sees Ken, her groom, her to-be husband, the one that's been faithful all these years of her life now. And she saw him and she realized that nothing else mattered but this one that was so committed to her, so in love with her. The grease marks, the tear, the dress, none of it mattered. And she uses that to prove a point. When we focus on Jesus, the more and more we focus on Him, because there's a wedding coming, and the church is the bride. And just like Johnny Tata, we, we're far from perfect. But the groom's not. And focusing on Jesus, because that's all that matters. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone that's experiencing this message right now, and they say, yeah, I'm in a season of suffering. And maybe it's been a long season of suffering. Father, would you help us to know that you are a righteous and just God? Would you help us to trust not only your justice, but your timeline? But most importantly, Father, would you give us a hope and a vision for Jesus. And there's a day that he's coming back in ultimate victory and all will be made right. And would you help us to see that? And in the meantime, Father, if you are willing to grant relief from the suffering that anyone's experiencing right now, I pray for that. I pray for healing and wholeness. And Father, I also ask that until that day comes, until you deliver us either now or someday from our suffering, that you would use our suffering. Would you be glorified in it and help us to see nothing but Jesus? Father, I realize this is a difficult teaching, but I ask by the power of your Spirit, would you give it life? in the body of Christ that gathers here. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.